Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm excited to share my conversation with Jody Magnus about the history of Masada, its role in public memory, and why it matters. Jody Magnus holds a senior endowed chair in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill as the Keenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism, and she's also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her research interests focus on Palestine in the Roman, Byzantine, and early Islamic periods and diaspora Judaism in the Roman world. Today, we'll be talking about her recent book, Masada, From Jewish Revolt to Modern Myth, which she wrote with the support of a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Award. It's an exciting book that synthesizes the history of this important archaeological site and how it's been received in modern times, both in terms of public memory and commemoration, as well as recent scholarship and archaeology. It's an important and accessible book, and I hope you'll check it out. If you purchase it directly from Princeton University Press, you can use the code MAS-FG to get a 30% discount. Again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy our conversation about Masada and how ancient history reverberates in modern times. Hi, Jody. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. I think this is such an important an interesting topic about the history of Masada, as well as the myth and the mythos that has risen up surrounding it. So I thought maybe one way to get us started is, can you maybe give us a brief overview of how you see Masada and what you see is going on there very briefly in terms of the ancient events and the archaeology, as well as how it has been received more recently? Wow, you want a brief answer to that? That's like asking the history of the world. <laughs> First, let me tell just a little bit about the story of Masada. So Masada is a mountain on the southwest shore of the Dead Sea. It was originally fortified by one of the Hasmonean kings, that is one of the successors of Maccabees. And then in the first century BCE, it was fortified again by King Herod the Great, who established a line of fortified palaces on the south and eastern frontier of his kingdom. Herod the Great, of course, served as client king of Judea for the Romans from the year 40 BCE until his death in the year 4 BCE. So Herod builds this series of like fortified palaces on top of the mountain, intending Masada to serve as a potential place of refuge for him in case of a Jewish revolt. That never actually happened. Herod died in the year 4 BCE of some natural causes. He got sick. And 70 years after Herod died in the year 66 CE, a Jewish revolt broke out against the Romans, what we call the first Jewish revolt against the Romans. And that revolt, when it broke out in 66, a group of Jewish rebels went down and took over the top of Masada and stayed there for the duration of the revolt. The revolt officially ended four years after it broke out in 70 CE. But after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 and the official end of the revolt, Masada continued to hold out in Jewish hands, together with another couple of other former fortified palaces of Herod. After the fall of Jerusalem in 70, the Romans sent troops 
to take these remaining holdouts. And the last one that was besieged by the Romans and fell to the Romans was Masada, which fell in either 73 or 74 CE. The reason why the story of Masada has been so compelling to modern visitors is because of the story of its fall to the Romans as this sort of last holdout of Jewish resistance. And the story goes that there were 967 Jewish men, women, and children holding out on top of the mountain when the Romans arrived with a force of somewhere around 8,000 soldiers at the foot of the mountain and set up a siege. And the story goes that these Jewish holdouts, these Jewish rebels, chose to commit mass suicide, to die by their own hand, rather than surrender to the Romans. That's sort of the end of the story of Masada. So that's what's made the story so compelling. The reasons why Masada has become somewhat controversial in recent years is because we only have one source that tells us the story of Masada. That is the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, Flavius Josephus, who lived in the first century CE. He's our only source. He's the one who tells the story of the mass suicide. And in recent years, some scholars have questioned whether Josephus' story of the mass suicide is actually true, whether it ever occurred or not. And then that, of course, would call into question the whole relevance of Masada in terms of modern visitors to the site. So that's the brief history of the world in a nutshell, but obviously it just skims the surface. Yeah, clearly you wrote a whole book about it, you know, so you, you've compressed it down into about three minutes. When we think about Masada, though, it's an important archaeological site in and of itself, both because it tells us about the ancient Hasmonean kingdom and Herod and all of that, and then, of course, the events of the Jewish revolt in the 60s and 70s uh, CE. But of course, it also has an important resonance in modern terms in as much as it has become a site of pilgrimage. To use the language of uh, Pianora, it is a site or location of memory where people visit not just to learn about the past, but to gain a sense about themselves and about their own present. It's kind of interesting because Masada is, in fact, depending on who you follow, either the first or second most visited archaeological site in Israel. I don't know. Sometimes it's Caesarea, sometimes it's Masada. Herod built plenty of other fortified palaces, and yet Masada is the one that attracts so many visitors. And the reason is precisely because of this mass suicide story, which when the state of Israel was established in the years leading up to the establishment of the state of Israel, became sort of an emblem or symbol of the modern state of Israel, where you have this you know, small band of Jewish rebels heroically holding out against the mighty Roman Empire. This actually goes back to already the 1930s, 1940s, so again, before the establishment of the state of Israel, when Jews began to sort of reestablish their connection to the land through hiking and you know, visiting sites around the country. And Masada became a big focus of that, thanks to the efforts of an archaeologist whose name was Shmaryahu Goodman, who probably a lot of your uh, listeners aren't familiar with. But he was really the one who put Masada on the map in terms of having these youth groups climb up to the top of the site and visit it. This was long before it was excavated. And then what happened is, is that, of course, the state of Israel was established. Afterwards, in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, Israeli archaeologist and uh, chief of staff of the Israeli army, Yiga El Yadin, conducted excavations on top of Masada and then published a very popular book about the site. With all of that and with the construction of a cable car from the bottom of the site to the top of the site in 1971, the visitors to the site tourism just exploded. 
So Masada really is very important in terms of the history of the modern state of Israel, as you say, as a site of pilgrimage for visitors. And that is precisely why the question of whether Josephus' account of the mass suicide is true or not is so important, right? Because if the mass suicide never occurred, then it removes the whole reason why Masada should be a site of pilgrimage. I'm glad that you brought up the questionability of the ancient account of the events of Masada, because this is the point of contention in so many ways, which is to say that as a historian, as a scholar, I generally don't like it when I can't corroborate any evidence about some historical event. And this is true whether we're talking about, you know, the 1920s, right, or whether we're talking about the first century CE. Now, of course, in ancient times, there are not as many sources that have survived from that time until today as we talk about modern history. I mean, I know for myself as a modern and contemporary historian, I have too many sources to deal with, right? But in the ancient world, we often only have a handful of uh, of fragments archaeologically written down or otherwise. And so do you maybe want to say something about Josephus and about what it means to have only one source that refers and relates this account? Right. Josephus was a Jewish man who lived in the first century CE. He was born, apparently, in 37 CE in Jerusalem. He was an aristocratic Jew, apparently from a priestly family. Eventually, when the Jewish revolt broke out against the Romans, he was put in charge of sort of administering the area of Galilee. When the Romans sent troops to take Galilee, Josephus, whose name originally was Joseph, Joseph, son of Mattathias, Josephus surrendered himself to the Romans and is considered, therefore, a traitor kind of in later Jewish tradition to the Jewish cause. And after the revolt ended and Jerusalem fell in 70, Josephus went to live in Rome, where he became a client of the imperial family, the the family of the Roman emperor Vespasian, and was commissioned by his Roman patrons to write a series of history books of the Jews. And we have these histories, they've survived. And the one that is relevant to Masada is a massive seven-book account of the Jewish War, which is called The Jewish War, which is about the First Revolt. And Josephus chose to end his account, this massive account of the Jewish War, with the mass suicide at Masada. But as I said, he's the only ancient author we have who tells the story of the siege and fall of Masada, including the mass suicide. We don't actually have any other Roman sources that give a lot of information about the First Revolt, although we do have sources. Tacitus, for example, describes the siege and fall of Jerusalem. So the question is, why is Josephus our only source? Is it that the story of, you know, this sort of siege and mass suicide at Masada was something that the Roman authors, other Roman writers chose not to write about because the Romans didn't want other peoples living under their rule to get the same idea that they could revolt against Rome in the same way. So it was kind of a thing you didn't want, you know, a lot of people to know about. Or, and I think this is more likely, is it just that it was such a minor episode in the view of the Romans that it wasn't worth writing about? And that's probably the case. In other words, what happens with Romans from the Roman point of view is the fall of Jerusalem in 70 is and the destruction of the temple. That's the main event. And from the Roman point of view, taking these handful of of fortresses that were still holding out after 70, that was really just little mopping up operations from the Roman point of view, and it wasn't something worth writing about. And that's probably why we don't have anything written in other Roman sources. Nevertheless, that still leaves Josephus as the only source on the mass suicide at Masada. We don't have any other external corroborating evidence, at least not from written sources. 
I want to talk a little bit more about Josephus and about the Roman and ancient Judean-Palestinian context, which is to say that when we talk about Josephus, he's not writing for other Jews, really. You know, in many ways, he is a client of the Roman imperial family. You know, that's why he takes the name Flavius Josephus. So when we look at a text like the Jewish War, when I read and talk about historiography, about you know, the analysis of historical writing, and we look at it from a narrative perspective, where things begin and end is very, very important. So the fact that he ends the story with Masada is very critical. And so to what extent is it possible, or might we say that Josephus is perhaps exaggerating what is taking place at Masada in an attempt to speak to his audience, who might be familiar with other kind of ancient historical accounts that embellish and, uh, you know, create set pieces. Like I'm thinking about, uh, like the work of Thucydides and others who, you know, relate these kinds of speeches and debates and all these different things that didn't actually happen. They weren't there. There's no sources for it, but they're illustrating a broader point. So first of all, there's been a lot of discussion among scholars about who Josephus's intended audience was. And in the case of the Jewish war, at least, he himself writes that there was apparently an Aramaic version of the Jewish war originally. So it's actually quite possible, we go according to that, that he did have a version that was aimed at Jews and other peoples who were living in the Near East. That's one thing. A second thing is that, yes, it's true that at least part of Josephus's target audience would have been the Romans and other non-Jews living under Roman rule. But nevertheless, I think that he would have also assumed that some Jews would have been familiar with and read his work. I don't think we can assume that the audience, the intended audience, was necessarily homogeneous in any way. The other question that you raised about Thucydides and all, you know, actually, it's very clear that Josephus modeled his account of the Jewish war after writers like Thucydides, um, very explicitly, in fact. And also, of course, and, and many of your listeners may know this, in the ancient world, in the Greek and Roman world, history writing was not viewed in the same way that it is today. That is, Greeks and Romans did not read history in order to find out some objective account of what actually occurred. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the goal of history writing in the Greek and Roman world. Greeks and Romans read histories in order to be entertained. That's why writers like Josephus or Herodotus, for example, typically focus on things that are different and exotic. And they also wrote in order to convey a moral right? There's supposed to be some sort of a moral or message. And we see this actually also in, in the Jewish war. So, you know, a lot of scholars have done these analyses of Josephus, and Josephus was a complex person and his writings are complex. So clearly the Jewish war had a number of intentions behind it, is, and a lot of it is self-serving. So one intention is to give a message that don't even think about uh, resisting Rome, about revolting against Rome because you're going to be crushed. And, you know, it's best if everybody simply goes along. This, by the way, from a guy who actually led resistance against Rome in Galilee. So, you know, there's also an element in here where Josephus actually tries to whitewash both the Jews and the Romans. So he presents the Jewish resistance against Rome as being led by extremists. He continuously, you know, pins the blame on Jewish extremists and doesn't include the majority of Jews, including himself. So, you know, oh, the majority of Jews were all okay. We had nothing to do with this. It wasn't our fault. You know, this disaster wasn't our fault. We loved Rome all along. And he tries to present it in that way. He skews things. And he also whitewashes the Roman role, right? He tries to present Vespasian and Titus as perfect gentlemen who, you know, tried to accommodate the Jews all along and prevent the destruction of the temple and all sorts of stuff like that. 
So there's all sorts of, you know, different biases and agendas going on in what Josephus is doing here. And you can't just read it at face value. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that a lot or even most of what he's reporting didn't actually happen. But it's a it's spin, right? It's ancient spin. So it's a matter of how he's presenting it. I think you know, Josephus is such an important historical figure. I myself am a little biased there as somebody who studies and focuses on the history of historiography or right? the history of how history is written. I know the extent to which Josephus was one of the ancient historians who people were reading into modern times in many ways. You, know, you look at some of the modern histories of the Jews written by a figure like Jacques Bajnage, the 18th century you know, Huguenot historian based in, uh, you know, in the Netherlands. They actually begin their stories after Josephus because they still see Josephus as a reliable source 1800 years or 1700 years after the fact, whatever the math is. Anyway, I mean, I think that it is significant that people are still relying on Josephus so much, even people like Yigal Yadin, right, who you look at his uh, sort of coffee table book on Masada, right, which is, of course, like one in a series of these kind of coffee table style books, which were produced about the different archaeological sites in modern day Israel. You know, there's also the one about Hatzor, you know, and other sites as well. But you look at the one about Masada, it really relies so single-handedly almost on Josephus. You read through the book and he's quoting from Josephus constantly, almost kind of retelling the story, only illustrated now by archaeological evidence. What I'm interested in here is kind of the tension between the ancient account and the archaeological evidence, you know, or to the extent to which it is verified or not, especially as somebody who's done extensive archaeological work at Masada, do you maybe want to say something briefly about how we can connect the ancient accounts with what we're finding you know, on the ground? Sure. So if I can just start, though, from the, the standpoint of how modern scholars have interpreted Josephus, you have to realize is that when Yigael Yadin excavated Masada in the 1960s, Scholarship in general tended to interpret Josephus in a much more literal way than scholars do now. And this is actually a trend that you see overall. For example, scholars since that time have become much more critical of the Bible as a source of historical information. So scholars in general have become more critical and more skeptical of using sources like Josephus or the Bible or whatever as sources of reliable or accurate historical information to a point where I would say that the trend has now swung or the pendulum has now swung in the completely opposite direction with scholars who question whether we can get any historical information out of a source like Josephus. So I think that one of the things that's important to recognize when evaluating Josephus is that how we approach Josephus is actually a product of the environment, the larger scholarly environment that we live in. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Josephus himself. It's our worldview right, that is dictating how we are approaching Josephus as a source. And that is what has led some modern scholars to question the story of the mass suicide at Masada. Now, before I say that, let me distinguish between two things here. So we have the Roman siege of Masada and we have the mass suicide. There is no doubt that there was a Roman siege of Masada. We have archaeological remains at Masada which are crystal clear that are associated with the siege. We have siege camps, we have a siege wall, we have an assault ramp. So there definitely was a Roman siege. The question is whether the siege ended with the mass suicide that Josephus tells. And the way that Josephus tells the story is that he says that, you know, there was this speech that the leader of the rebels on top of Masada, a man named Elazar Ben Yair, gave to, you know, all of the assembled men. 
And by the way, you mentioned, you know, these invented speeches, right? So that's one of the characteristics that Josephus sort of adopts from the Greek and Roman historiographical tradition, which is putting these long invented speeches in the mouths of his protagonists. Elizar Benier gives a couple of these long speeches, supposedly, to the rebels on top of Masada. He convinces them that after the Romans invested all of this effort to take the top of the mountain, that the best thing that they could do to rob the Romans of their hard-won victory would be if they all die first at their own hand. And so what they do is the men first take their wives and children and kill them. And then the men get together and draw lots. And out of the men, 10 men kill the others. And then those 10 remaining men get together, draw lots again. And one of the men kills the other nine and then finally kills himself. And by the way, notice that technically then there's only one suicide at Masada, meaning only one man who dies at his own hand, in case you're worried about breaking Jewish law, which says that you shouldn't commit suicide. Although my highly esteemed colleague, Larry Schiffman at New York University pointed out to me a month or two ago that, well, homicide is also prohibited by Jewish. So either way, they were breaking Jewish law. But anyway, so the story goes that not everybody committed suicide. There were two old women who overheard the plans to commit suicide. They hid out with some children in a cistern on the side of the mountain, gave themselves up alive to the Romans, and then somehow directly or indirectly, the story was told to Josephus and he finishes his massive account of the Jewish war with this episode. The reason why some scholars in recent years have called the account of the mass suicide into question is because they have pointed out that this sort of story of or theme of mass suicide occurs over and over again in Josephus, not just at Masada, but in other episodes. So, for example, at Gamla in the Golan or Jotapata, where Josephus himself was taken by the Romans, gave himself up to the Romans. And not just in Josephus, by the way, also other ancient authors use this sort of theme of mass suicide. And so what these modern scholars have, have questioned is, well, is it in fact be the case that so many people were committing mass suicide? Or could it be that Josephus invented this as a device to make the story more gripping, as a literary device? And you have to admit, it does make the story more gripping. We wouldn't be sitting here talking about Masada right now if it wasn't for the story of the mass suicide. So if it was a literary device, it was a very successful literary device. Now, some of your listeners or viewers might be wondering, well, wait a minute, wouldn't the Roman patrons of Josephus have objected to Josephus fabricating an ending to the story that elevated the Jews? That is, when you read the account of the mass suicide, the Jews look heroic and noble and preferring death at their own hand than giving themselves up alive or being taken by the Romans. Wouldn't the Romans have objected to that? But of course, actually, that could very well have served Roman purposes because there's no glory in defeating a weak or wimpy enemy, but there's lots of glory in defeating a strong and noble enemy, a heroic enemy. So it elevates the Romans' victory over the Jews. So then we get to the point of archaeology, right? So if you can't tell one way or the other from Josephus whether the mass suicide actually occurred, can we tell from archaeology? And people want to know, well, does archaeology provide this evidence? And the fact of the matter is that archaeology does not. And the reason is that archaeology is a science. And like all scientific disciplines, archaeology is equipped to answer certain kinds of questions, but not equipped to answer other kinds of questions. And this question of whether the mass suicide actually occurred or not is not a question that archaeology is equipped to answer. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples of why that is the case. First of all, and especially people who have visited Masada might be familiar with this, 
on the lowest terrace of the Northern Palace Complex at Masada, Herod's Northern Palace Complex, Yigael Yadin found the remains of three skeletons, a man, a woman, and child, which he interpreted as the remains of a Jewish rebel family. The question is, well, what happened to those 967 men, women, and children who supposedly committed mass suicide? Well, Yadin found those three skeletal remains. He found another group of somewhere between five to 25 skeletons in a cistern on the southeast side of the mountain. It's not clear if they were Jews or Romans or Byzantine monks or whatever, but anyway, but he didn't find any other skeletal remains in his excavations. So you might say, well, and Yadin expected, actually, you would have expected when Yadin excavated the top of the mountain that he would have found the remains of these 967 men, women, and children who committed mass suicide. What did Yadin, how did Yadin explain this? Yadin, of course, uh, was using Josephus in a very literal way. So he thought that the mass suicide had actually occurred. So Yadin's explanation was, well, yeah, everybody committed mass suicide. When the Romans came up to the top of the mountain, they found all of these corpses lying around. And then what happened? After the fall of the mountain, the Romans left a garrison camped on top of the mountain for a couple of decades. So they wouldn't have left rotting corpses lying around. They would have cleared them away and either buried them or maybe burned them. Okay, so we don't have remains. Now let's imagine that there is no mass suicide, that the Jews put up a heroic resistance. Some of them are killed. Some of them are led away into captivity. Well, you have the same result. Any corpses that were left lying around at the end of that battle that would have occurred after the Romans got into the top of the mountain would have been cleared away. So let's take another example. Anybody who's visited the top of Masada surely was shown a room in the Northern Palace complex next to the large bathhouse where supposedly the lots were found. So in this room, Yadin found a group of inscribed potsherds, what are called ostracon. They all had names inscribed on them. And all the names are Hebrew names. And in fact, one of the names is Ben Yair. And Josephus says Elazar Ben Yair was the leader of the rebels on top of Masada. So Yadin interpreted this group of, of ostracon, scribe potsherds, as the lots that were cast at the end of the fall of the mountain. What was the problem? The problem is that there were not 10 in the group. There were 12 ostracon in the group, 12 lots. So what do you do about that? So Yadin said, okay, well, the 11th one is Ben Yair. He's the leader of the rebels. We can, we, he would have drawn, we can discount that too. That's how we got to Ben. So eventually these ostraca were published by a different scholar in the Masada final reports. And this scholar was unable to conclude that they are in fact a lot. And the reason is we have inscribed potsherds with names that were found all over the site in different places and were clearly used for different purposes, such as meal ration tickets. So the scholar who published this group of quote-unquote lots was unable to conclusively identify them as really lots or as ostraca that were used for some other purpose. So the point is that the archaeological evidence can be interpreted one way or the other as either supporting Josephus's account of the mass suicide or not, depending on how you interpret Josephus. So this is not a question that archaeology is equipped to give an unequivocal answer to. And that's why, by the way, in my book, I leave this open. I simply explain to readers, this is not something that archaeology can decide. And scholars themselves do not agree on the interpretation of Josephus's account. This is a really interesting insight into how we study the past, particularly the ancient past, where there are limited resources and limited capabilities. I mean, look, as a historian, I also am well aware of the limitations of knowing the past in general, right? You know, we weren't there. Or if we were, you might remember it. 
differently from how it actually was. So there are limits to what we can know about the past. It is inherently unknowable in and of itself because it is distant from ourselves. And this is especially true when we get further and further into the past, you know, towards ancient times. But it's one thing for the two of us as scholars to say, okay, there are limits to what we can know about the past. Why does that matter when we are thinking about especially knowledge of the ancient world? What I'm trying to say is that some people might look at this conversation and say, okay, this is some kind of internal scholarly navel-gazing, you know, about how much can we really know about the past? Why does that matter, especially when we are trying to look at the ancient history of the land of Israel? And to what extent should somebody who's not a scholar, who is kind of like, okay, so they only know some things, but, you know, they're kind of undercutting themselves and saying, you know, we can only know certain things about the past and not other things. You know, why does it matter to recognize the limitations of our knowledge about the past. And especially when you say like, okay, we can't know something about a specific individual or a specific historical event, right? Like say, for example, we can't find a particular piece of historical evidence about Jesus or other ancient historical figures like Moses, of course, another even much more mythological figure, right? Masada is another great example where you have a specific historical event and you can't prove if it happened or if it didn't in the way that it's recounted. I mean, I see this even in modern times where my book on the history of archives, for instance, is something that I've been obviously working on now for many years. And when I started the project, I often would be like, okay, when was this archive founded? Where did the idea come from for creating such and such an archive or such and such a project? And you can't find it. Sometimes it's just not recorded. Okay, this person had a conversation with somebody in the hallway and they never wrote it down, right? You know, so there are limits to what we can know about the past. But why do we care about that in a way that goes beyond sort of an internal scholarly debate about the limitations or epistemology knowledge about the past? I think there are in the world kind of two tracks. <laughs> there's the scholarly track and there's the sort of public track, right? And they don't always intersect, or at least they don't intersect enough. I think that in general, many members of the public don't realize what the limitations of our sources are, number one. And I think part of it is because of the way that this gets presented to the public in media and online and so on. The fact that practically every TV documentary about, let's call it the Holy Land, focuses on something that actually is not archaeologically or even historically provable, whether it's the Exodus or the Holy Grail or whatever. The fact that this is what gets presented to the public over and over again by programs that are supposed to be scientific and content, but of course are not always that scientific in content. Even programs on the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I'm often involved with, aren't necessarily always that scientific in content. So we have these two tracks, but I think that in the case of Israel, it's much more complicated because of the religious dimension, right? And because so much of this is rooted in, whether on the part of Jews or Christians, an attempt to sort of verify and even validate events that are described in the biblical account, Bible, broadly speaking, the biblical account, and by way of extension, then validate religious beliefs or contemporary political claims. I think that's the reason why there's so much at stake here, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like perhaps we're getting sidetracked away from the specific issues of Masada, but I think that one of the reasons why this kind of conversation is relevant in particular contemporary terms, actually, is that we're living in a moment where there is a lot of questioning of expertise in the broader society in which we are living. So one of the challenges here is when experts kind of get into it about, you know, how much can we really know? Or like, what are the limitations of our knowledge? 
In some ways, I think it might play into the hands of conspiracy theorists and you know, people who don't trust the expertise of medical doctors or scholars of any kind of field. And I think that's a real challenge because I think that as scholars, we are familiar with and, and we need to understand the limits of what we can do because, as we talked about, there are limitations to historical knowledge. But part of the question is here, when we focus on like, okay, we can't prove, for instance, that what happened at Masada took place, but we also can't disprove it entirely, right? There is evidence you know, of the Roman siege and so on. To what extent does that play into the hands of people who want to accept, for instance, Josephus at his word or want to sensationalize this history and say, well, they can't disprove it either? I agree with you that that can happen. I personally, I can't live just trying to think all the time, well, how are people going to take and possibly even distort or misrepresent what it is that I say or write? What I do try to do is communicate to the public, because this book, Masada, is, is aimed at a non-specialist readership. I do try to communicate my scholarship to the public in a way that explains all of this. What I always tell my students is, I consider my job to be to educate and to inform. Beyond that, it's up to people then to decide what they want to believe or not. And I can't control that. I do try to lay it all out as clearly as possible. And then beyond that, there are things that you just can't control, right? So I do agree with you. I think that one of the big problems here is the whole point of a good, you know, liberal arts undergraduate education is supposed to be in the United States, which is to teach people how to think critically. And thinking critically means that you have to understand how to evaluate your sources, to know where your information is coming from and how reliable your source or sources of information are. And that's as true of Josephus 2000 years ago as it is of media today, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it highlights one of the reasons why this is such an important issue, um, which is to say that I think that the history of Masada, the history of Josephus and other ancient accounts about the ancient world, let alone any other kind of historical analysis, it's a really good case study for people to think with and to think about this question of how can we be critical of the knowledge that we are receiving or that we have been told and think through, you know, to what extent can we trust the sources of our information in this particular moment, especially when there is so much misinformation or disinformation surrounding us about all sorts of different issues. I think it's a really useful case to show and highlight how received knowledge has power and how when people take it uncritically or at face value, it can lead to all sorts of repercussions. When you think about the scholarship on Masada, right, and the archaeological findings which have taken place over the past 50 years or so, as you've mentioned, there has been a tremendous shift in how scholars approach Masada. So when you think about that shift, you know, what do you think are the biggest components you know, of that? You mentioned how people don't take Josephus at face value, right? When you look at the changing approaches to Masada, you know, could you pinpoint a couple of points of the scholarship and in the findings that have contributed to that shift? What we can see in recent years among archaeologists are attempts by some archaeologists to interpret the evidence from Masada in a way that supports Josephus versus attempts by other archaeologists to interpret the evidence in a way that disproves Josephus. And this goes back to what I said before, that you can take the same archaeological evidence and interpret it in different ways, depending on what side you want to take. Right. Obviously, this book, as you said, is written 
towards a popular audience. You want people to learn about it. But you, of course, have also been doing your own research at Masada. So I don't know if you just want to say something briefly about what you have been doing and about how you see those kinds of archaeological investigations playing into this broader trend, which is, as you said, the more critical perspective on the events that took place there and as they've been recounted by Josephus and so on. I actually don't think my own work does that so much, but my personal interest in Masada has largely been focused on the Roman side of the story, which has been pretty much overlooked, or I don't want to say overlooked, but not nearly as much focus as the story of, you know, the rebels on top of the mountain. And it's kind of ironic, actually, because Yadin, when he excavated Masada, you know, in the early 1960s, in addition to being probably Israel's most famous archaeologist, he was also chief of staff of the Israeli army, and he was an expert in ancient warfare. And yet his interest at Masada was focused on the story of the rebels on the top of the mountain and not on the Roman siege. And we have at Masada preserved probably the best examples of Roman siege works anywhere in the Roman world. For one reason, because it's in the desert and it was never built over. And for another reason, because the Roman siege works at Masada are built of stone and not of perishable materials like sod or wood in other parts of the Roman Empire. When we go to Masada and we look at the evidence of the Roman siege, the Roman siege works, we have an opportunity to learn a lot of information about how the Romans conducted a siege in the field. That's actually my own personal involvement in the story of Masada. I co-published the military equipment that Yadin found in his excavations on top of the mountain, and I co-directed excavations in 1995 in the Roman siege works at the base of the mountain. And we get a lot of really interesting information about the siege, because one of the things you have to realize, I'll just give you one example. The Romans had a force of somewhere around 8,000 soldiers at the base of the mountain. They were camped in eight camps around the foot of the mountain, plus pack animals, plus slaves, plus camp hangers on. So a huge number of people, they're out there. It was winter, spring, so it wasn't the summer. It was winter, spring of 72, 73 or 73, 74. But, you know, the area around Masada is desolate. And they had to bring supplies in to feed and water these people and animals every day during the siege. The question of how did they supplying all of these forces at the base of the mountain. Another interesting thing, by the way, that a lot of people don't realize, many people, especially people who have visited Masada, have the mistaken impression that the siege lasted for three years because Jerusalem falls in 70 and Masada falls somewhere around 73. But in fact, the siege lasted somewhere between a maximum of, let's say, six months to a minimum of seven weeks. So the siege itself probably was only about two months long in all from beginning to end. And we can actually demonstrate that through an analysis of the siege works. The, the logistics on that has, have been analyzed by a scholar. And so there are all sorts of interesting aspects that we can learn through archaeology about the Roman side of the story at Masada that people generally don't focus on. And that's been my main focus. Yeah. So I think that this is fascinating. Right. And we could have a whole episode or a whole conversation just about this question of which side of the story gets told. I want to come back to that in a second, because I do think that one of the interesting things about Masada is about why it matters in the broadest context that we can imagine. And like you were saying, that, that this has to do with what it teaches us about the Roman world at large. What I want us to think about here for a second before that is about the popular perception of Masada. You know, as we said before, this is a book written for a popular audience. Masada is a very important popular topic. In many ways, I think this is an issue that we've kind of had under the surface here throughout our entire conversation, the status of Masada in public culture, in Israel, in modern Jewish culture, etc. I guess as we think about the way in which Masada has been viewed by scholars, right, and this has both to do with the question of Josephus 
and whether or not the mass suicide took place. Also about the focus on the Jews as opposed to the conquering Romans. There are all sorts of aspects here where there is perhaps a disconnect between what scholars have been doing over the past 50 years, you know, changing scholarly consensus or scholarly findings in different directions. Do you maybe want to say something briefly about how we get from Josephus and the archaeology to the modern mythos surrounding Masada, and also to what extent there perhaps is a disconnect or a tension between the way that Masada is popularly understood and the scholarly consensus debate and conversation, which is taking place not on a you know, public tour of Masada? Well, I guess actually it would depend on which tour guide you have, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I mean, it goes back to what we started out with, right? How Masada becomes part of the story of the establishment of the state of Israel in the middle of the 20th century. And through originally the efforts of Shemariahu Goodman and then later the excavations of Yigal Yadin, kind of becomes a symbol of the modern state of Israel, this heroic resistance of a small band of Jews against the mighty Roman Empire, the, the site itself as this kind of isolated mountain, isolated on all sides, also becomes sort of symbolic of the state of Israel. And all of this happening in an era when we're in a Zionist era, right? This is all part of the Zionist enterprise and the formation of a Zionist identity. And that begins to fall apart, you know, eventually, especially from the 1980s on, when in Israel, we begin to enter, at least in some sectors, let's say the more sectors of the intelligentsia or whatever, you know, a post-Zionist era. Over the course of the decades uh, since the 1980s, with the breakdown of the kind of traditional Zionist paradigm in Israel, if you wish, not that it's broken down in all sectors, but anyway, I think Masada has become less and less of a symbol of the state of Israel. There also has been controversy that started already in the 1970s about whether having the symbol of your modern state be a site where everybody commits mass suicide at the end, like that's not necessarily the best model uh, for your state. And so you see this, the Israeli army used to have some units sworn in on top of Masada that, that stopped at some point. In certain ways, Masada at some point becomes less and less of a symbol of the Zionist enterprise in Israel. And that's true, especially, I think, in Israel. But I think it's much less true outside of Israel. In other words, I think that in the diaspora, and especially among diaspora Jews, but not only Jews, also non-Jews, but especially among diaspora Jews, Masada has retained its potency as a symbol of the state of Israel. And all you have to do is go to the top of Masada on any given day and look at the tour groups walking around and listen to the tour guides talking about the story of the mass suicide to understand that. And I end the book by talking about how Masada, even in politically, still is a symbol of the state of Israel and the Zionist enterprise with visits of modern U.S. presidents to the site. George W. Bush visited the site when he was president. Bill and Hillary Clinton visited the site. I actually have an old newspaper clipping on my corkboard in my office that shows Bill and Hillary Clinton visiting the site a couple of years after I conducted my excavations in the siege camps there. When President Trump made his historic 22-hour visit to Israel in 2017, he originally planned to go to Masada and deliver a speech on top of the mountain, which, by the way, was controversial because no U.S. president, no sitting U.S. president had ever done that before, precisely because of Masada symbolism. Uh, and the only reason that didn't happen is because President Trump wanted to fly by helicopter to the top of Masada. He didn't want to take the cable car. And the Israeli authorities, rightfully so, I must say, 
would not allow a helicopter to land on top of the mountain because of the damage that it would do to the archaeological remains. And President Trump ultimately decided to stay in Jerusalem and deliver his speech there. That's where I end the book. And that is to show that even as we are in what we might call a post-Zionist era, at least for some people, even so, Masada has retained that potency as a symbol of the modern state of Israel, even until now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things there that you highlight is the disconnection, perhaps, between how Zionism and the contemporary affairs in Israel are understood by Israelis and how they are understood by Americans. And also American political figures understand that differently. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And I actually also think that in Israel, there is a conscious effort to market antiquities and archaeology to support these kinds of narratives. And I don't want to go into it, but I mean, you could see that last summer with the opening of the tunnel under the City of David, right, from the Pool of Siloam up to the Temple Mount. You can see another example of that. So I think that the Israeli government authorities and are fully aware of this and use it in various ways. Well, yeah, I mean, the City of David is a whole kind of <laughs> I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> but I'm just saying that it's very much the same kind of thing. In other words, this is the way archaeology gets marketed to outsiders, let's say. Right. I think there are so many facets of this. I teach a class about historical memory and nationalism. And Masada is one of the major topics that we talk about because it is such a potent set of issues in so many ways. And one of the things that, that I'm always struck by whenever I think about Masada from the perspective of historical memory is how it has persisted, of course, differently among different groups. But if you think about Josephus and the dramatic tale that he told, you know, whether it's accurate or otherwise, it has had this impact in ways that normally historical scholarship doesn't. I think that's largely because of the way the story was revived, let's say, in the first half of the 20th century, right, for very specific purposes. It wasn't like Jews for the last 2,000 years have been retelling the story of the mass suicide at Masada. It's a story that was taken and used as part of the construction of this kind of Zionist enterprise, wasn't it? Absolutely. And I think that this is important when we think about the ancient history in general, right? Whether we're talking about the stories which are told in the Jewish Bible, whether we're talking about the history of the Maccabees, the history of the Jewish revolt, etc. I think a very important thing is that we can perhaps track the way in which different interpretations and different tellings of these stories rise and fall at different points in time. You know, even just like with the story of Hanukkah, the interpretation of the events in the book of Maccabees, right, versus the way it's described in the Talmud, for instance, relates to very different approaches to, to violence and rebellion, how they are understood in the Jewish world, right? So the Hasmoneans, of course, saw what took place as a, you know, very glorious, etc. By the time you get to the rabbis, after a series of failed revolts, they don't want to glorify the, the revolt against the Romans. So I think like in modern times, like certain holidays have been revived. You know, Hanukkah, of course, is, is the great example of this for nationalistic purposes. So I think that you're right to kind of point out that, you know, it's not like somebody in the 18th century, you know, read Josephus and read it in a nationalistic perspective because nationalism, first of all, didn't exist then in the way that it did in the 19th century. But all of this is to say that that Masada is such a rich site, archaeologically speaking, and also in terms of this question of the history of memory. And this is why I think it's important among other reasons. I actually think that what's happened with Hanukkah is only because of Christmas. I don't think it has anything to do with nationalism. 
what happens is we live in a country that is supposedly, you know, a multicultural society that with separation supposedly of church and state, where we celebrate all religious traditions equally. And so we have a quote unquote winter break from classes at the university, winter break. And we have quote unquote holiday parties during that time. But very conveniently, this winter break falls in the second half of December. In other words, it falls at Christmas time. And in order to justify that this is not a religious holiday, because we're not supposed to have religious holidays, right? To make it a non-religious holiday or to make it at least a holiday that's more general, we have to include other religious traditions. And the only Jewish holiday that occurs in any kind of temporal proximity to Christmas is Hanukkah, which of course is a very minor Jewish holiday. And in fact, is not a religious holiday. It's not biblically mandated. Uh, the major Jewish holidays are in the spring and in the fall. What has happened is, is that Hanukkah has been elevated from a very minor Jewish holiday to a major Jewish holiday simply because we have to justify that we're celebrating everybody's religious traditions equally. And so the majority of Americans, if they've ever heard of any Jewish holiday at all, have only ever heard of Hanukkah. I mean, I think that the significance of this issue relating to Hanukkah, for instance, you know, has to do with the malleability of the past, and particularly the ancient past. And I don't know if you want to say more about that in a broader sense, which is to say that the past, of course, doesn't change. What happened has happened. But how people understand it and how people utilize the past changes over the course of time. And I would argue that the ancient past is particularly malleable because so much of what we know about the ancient past is limited, and it's far enough away that no one remembers it in their own lives, obviously. When you think about Hanukkah, when you think about Masada, when you think about other instances of the use of the ancient past, I'm curious kind of your perspective on this as an archaeologist about the potency of the ancient past as a tool for the creation of modern rituals, of sites of pilgrimage, and informing the way that people think about their own lives, even though, of course, the history is ancient. What I am interested in doing is presenting to the public as accurately as possible what information we have, how we know it, and how it's been interpreted, you know, how it can be interpreted in different ways. And beyond that, people are free to believe or choose to believe whatever they want. So I'm, I'm not sure I can say more. That's why in my book, I left the question of whether the mass suicide occurred open, because we can't answer that. I've had people contact me and say, I'm very disappointed you didn't tell me whether the mass suicide occurred or not. I actually had one reviewer, a scholar, who criticized me in his review for not saying, well, did the, and it's like, well, you kind of missed the point. The point is, is that this is not something that the evidence that we have can answer. Right. I mean, I think part of what I'm thinking about here is just not about Masada itself specifically, but just about the way in which the ancient past is utilized. I mean, I, as a modern historian, I see this all the time in terms of the history of nationalism, you know, that various groups, of course, the Jews are not alone. In many ways, Jews were emulating other groups in their aspirations for nationalism, the creation of a state, etc. Like I think about like the work of Pat Geary, for instance, in his book, The Myth of Nations, uh, where he talks about the mythologizing of the various ancient tribes of Europe. The Germans reading Tacitus, for instance, or the French associating themselves with the Gauls, the history of the Angles and the Saxons and all these different things, and the way in which ancient and early medieval history you know, have been put to use for nationalistic purposes. And of course, Masada is a great example of this. Hanukkah may be that it just has to do with Christmas. You might be correct there, but it also, I see as somebody who studies modern history, somebody who studies the history of nationalism, I feel like, you know, I see these things because that's what I study, but I'm also generally interested in this disconnect 
between what's happening in the scholarship and the popular understanding. And this, of course, is in a certain way at the heart of this podcast, too, which in a lot of the conversations I have with people, we're talking about some new book about whatever topic. And the question is, okay, you have this new perspective, you know, this new approach, which differs in some ways from what other scholars have said. That's the whole point in many ways, right? If you were just agreeing with everybody else, you wouldn't write a new book. It also, in many ways, often conflicts with a popular understanding of the history. And so when you look at what's happened in terms of Masada as well, you know, there is a popular perception about Masada, which is perpetuated. Of course, it depends on your tour guide, but it's perpetuated by when people visit the site, when people receive a certain mythology about this you know, glorious last stand and you know, mass suicide and you know, et cetera. And so part of what I'm interested in here and thinking about is how this past has been used and abused on the one hand, and also the role of scholars in that conversation. Like you yourself, in certain ways in the book, separating yourself from that by saying, you know, I won't give an answer to whether or not it happened in the first place, but you still are a part of that conversation in many ways by contributing to the scholarship on Masada. Sure, every scholar contributes to this in some way and either thinking about how it's going to impact sort of the public perception or not. Sometimes scholars are just immersed in their own scholarship and they're not thinking about how it's going to necessarily impact a public perception. So I think that's certainly true. Going back to Yadin, Yadin was very smart. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't naive. I'm not seeing my goal here as undermining things one way or another. It's again, simply, as I said before, to educate and inform and to show what we know and how we know it. And what I know I'm repeating myself, but what the limitations of the evidence are. And I, Of course, that contributes to the conversation, right? The ongoing conversation, but I hope it's contributing in a productive way. You're making a conscious choice in the book to avoid giving an answer. The issue here is that when you look at a series of historical events that have been interpreted in various ways and that have such potency in terms of the way in which they play a part in nationalism or historical memory, why do you think that it's significant in terms of how you're presenting this set of issues to the public in a book about Masada, which is meant to reach both scholars as well as as non-scholars, non-experts. What do you want to contribute to that conversation in that way? I'm not necessarily asking people to draw their own conclusions about the mass suicide story. So basically what I'm trying to say is that we just can't know based on the evidence that we have. I mean, you can choose to believe whatever you want beyond that. But my point is that the evidence that we have, the sources that we have, whether it's Josephus or the archaeology, simply do not provide the answer to that question. As an archaeologist, I'm particularly concerned with the responsible use of archaeology as a means of learning about the past. Because here's a case where archaeology has been used as part of a nationalistic endeavor. And I do not think that archaeology should be used to legitimize anybody's claims one way or the other to whatever part it is of the past. We're almost out of time. So First, I want to thank you for this really, really interesting conversation. But I want to ask you one final thing, which is to say that I think that this conversation began with a certain assumption of the importance of Masada. But I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on why we think Masada matters, which and this goes back to some of what you were discussing about the Roman context, for instance, which is that Masada, the archaeological digs tell us something really important about the ancient world as a whole, as well as about the modern world. And so when you think about why Masada matters, why this is a site that people continue to go to that captures the imagination in so many different ways, as well as is a site of scholarly investigation for decades and decades. 
why do you think that Masada matters and why do you think that looking at Masada from a critical historical and archaeological perspective is an important thing for people to be doing? For the general public, I think that Masada is going to remain important as a symbol of state of Israel and connected with Zionist endeavor. I think that perception might change, but I don't think it will necessarily be due to scholarship. From the point of view of a scholar or, or an academic or an archaeologist, Masada is important because it can tell us a lot about things that we didn't know with regard to the Roman siege or the occupation by the Jewish rebels of the site at the time of the first revolt, a lot of interesting information about daily life, which is to say then that Masada will matter to somebody like me, not for the same reasons that it will matter to somebody who's, let's say, a member of the general public. And by the way, the same exact thing is true of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Most people have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they have no idea what they are, those people, or they have very little idea of what they are. The reason why the Dead Sea Scrolls would be important to, let's say, a member of the random general public would probably be different than the reasons why Dead Sea Scrolls in the site of Qumran would be important and interesting to me. And hopefully through writing and publishing books that are aimed at a general public, we can help bring the two sides a little closer together but there are different perceptions from different sides. Well, thank you again so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks to you for listening in. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you're interested in purchasing the book, Masada, From Jewish Revolt to Modern Myth, I've shared a link to Princeton University Press in the show notes, and you can use the code MAS-FG for a discount. And I also hope that you'll share this episode with a friend. You can find it at jewishhistory.fm slash Masada. You can also find Jewish History Matters on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and elsewhere. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.